Let's just do this. On me in three, two, one. It's Groundhog Day again. That must mean we're here at the rundown, waiting for the forecast of news from the world's two most famous internet newscasters, Tom Hollingsworth and Stephen Foskett, who are just about to tell us how many more acquisitions we can expect and how much more malware there will be out there. This is a riot can't wait. Thank you for joining us on this February 2nd, Groundhog Day, of course, the most famous movie to star Bill Murray as a time-traveling demigod. Um, my name is Tom Hollingsworth, and the share to my sonny, of course, is Mr. Stephen Foskett joining me for this episode. Stephen, I got you, babe. How are things today? I got you, babe, as well. Um, I, I, If you don't know what we're talking about, please just watch the movie. It's amazing. Uh, Yes, please just take the rest of the morning off and watch this movie. Um, it, it will totally make your day. Um, but put your little hand in mine because we've got some news stories that we need to cover from the last week. Um, I was off last week for networking field day and uh, Stephen and Chris Grundeman definitely took care of all the stuff that uh, that came up. But we had some more entertaining news stories that we definitely want to make sure we get to. Um, starting with um, some old news, if you want to think about it that way, because Hewlett Packard, finally won a civil fraud judgment in the UK against the former CEO of Autonomy, one Mike Lynch. Now, if you'll remember, Hewlett Packard, not the Inc. and not the E, acquired the company back in 2011 to the tune of $11 billion and then was forced to write down $8.8 billion of that acquisition because the value of the company had been somewhat inflated. Lynch was accused of using some accounting tricks and misstating revenues to make the company look much more successful than it actually was. And that caused Hewlett Packard to file suit back in 2015, and it had been working its way through the court system in the UK. However, in 2019, the US Department of Justice came crashing in like the Kool-Aid man and decided that they were going to file an extradition notice because they wanted Lynch to come to this side of the pond so that they could file the same fraud charges against him. Now, the ruling against Lynch came mere hours before the UK Home Secretary filed the, completed the paperwork for the extradition notice to send Lynch over here to face those same fraud charges. Stephen, is this good news for the investors that felt just a little bit burned by that whole autonomy mess? I don't, I don't think good news is the way that I would characterize it so much as uh, comeuppance or revenge. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, maybe maybe revenge isn't something that business people think about, but um, they were ticked off. Uh, and, and for good reason. Like you said, the, the, the bare facts of the matter is that HPE or HP spent $11 billion to buy autonomy on the basis of numbers that now a court has said were fraudulent. Um, and, and by the way, this was the UK court. So this was, he was convicted apparently in the UK here uh, in a civil fraud case, um, which means that effectively this is one of the biggest fraud cases in enterprise IT in history. And, and, and frankly, the, the, the details here are absolutely amazing, but, but I suspect that they're maybe not at all that unusual because I'm, I don't know, I don't know Mike Lynch, I don't know anything about him, but I suspect that he was basically thought that he was 
you know, kind of maybe not cooking the books, but maybe warming or heating up, you know, microwaving the books a little bit to, to make the thing look good. We've seen this happen in other companies as well. I mean, I don't want to talk out of school, but I know for a fact that some pre-acquisition companies or uh, startups that have just gone public will, uh, for example, hold off on paying um, accounts payable in order to make it look like they have more money in the bank at the end of the quarter. Uh, I've seen companies that report non-GAAP numbers because they, well, officially because they don't approve of how the generally accepted accounting practices handle certain common Silicon Valley uh, shenanigans, but but truly because it makes the companies look better. I mean, Tesla is one of the companies that has done this quite effectively over the years, uh, and frankly, with good reason. So again, I'm not trying to throw stones here. All I'm trying to say is I suspect that the Board of Autonomy was not a band of bandit-hatted criminals, but was in fact a, a group of people that were just trying to make the company's numbers look good. But that being said, uh, that all ends as soon as they hand those numbers over to HP as an acquirer without context and without explaining what was going on. And there's no way HP would have spent $11 billion for autonomy if the company was not worth anywhere near that, which is exactly what they found just a couple of years later. Uh, HP is claiming, they claimed in this suit, uh, $5 billion in damages, which suggests that... um, you know, the numbers were inflated, like like doubled. And that's really, really bad. Uh, the fact that uh, this was uh, convi- that, that uh, Lynch was a- convicted in the UK and is now being extradited to the US is really, really bad news for Mike Lynch. Uh, it doesn't really give us, it, we, there's no win here. But uh, like I said, at least the investors have the, uh, the feeling that, that, they, that they, they got something out of this. In other news, Tom, uh, North Korean hacker group Lazarus has learned a new trick. Uh, What better way to keep your malware up to date than using Microsoft's own Windows Update? The analysis of a spear phishing campaign last month against defense contractor Lockheed Martin showed that a new variant of the malware was leveraging the Windows Update client to sideload an infected DLL. This is similar to how the R evil group uh, last summer used Windows Defender to uh, spread malware among targets. Is this inspired trickery or is this a worrisome trend? Boy, if anything felt like Groundhog Day again, it would be this because how many times is Lazarus going to pop back up? I was just having a conversation with some industry experts about this uh, Monday about the idea that there, you know, there are two different kinds of, of malware gangs out there. There are the ones who are doing things for state sponsored intelligence gathering reasons, you know, uh, I don't know, causing cyber outages in a country right before you invade them. And then there are the ones that are good old fashioned state sponsored criminals who are just doing it for the money. Um, and that would be Lazarus Group. We have documented evidence that they are basically while maybe not completely beholden to the North Korean government, they are definitely getting the we're going to look the other way treatment because what they do is not steal intelligence. They don't try to uh, corrupt other countries' governments. They just steal cash. And when you work and live in an organization that's basically a pariah on the world stage, you need money. And that's how they're going to do it. And I, I think, honestly, this is the type of attack we're going to see more of in 2022. It's not just finding ways to deliver the malware, Um, you know, something as 
insidious as uh, the the variants that nailed Siemens a few years ago. Um, those didn't spread using infrastructure. Those, those spread with the old fashioned way, you know, like a, a regular computer worm. Um, but with the advances that we're seeing by being able to corrupt Windows Defender's client, by being able to sideload DLLs into the Windows Update client, it's doing two things. One, it's really hard to root that stuff out. I mean, looking into the, the linked article where you basically find out that it's launching a special shortcut that fires up the client, but sideloads a DLL that allows it to continue to pull down the, the stuff. I mean, that's that's pretty easy stuff. But more importantly, it's causing distrust in the basic applications that run our system. Um, you know, how many times has your mom or your grandma or your aunt or uncle texted you and been like, Hey, it says I need to do an update. Can I trust that? Well, can you? Because if Windows Update is constantly going to relaunch and pull this information down and continually reinfect your system, even if you know that Windows and Microsoft have done everything they can to protect your system, it's still going to give you just a second of pause when you fire it off every time. So I hope that we find ways to, I don't know, do a better job of signing these uh programs or prevent them from pulling in external DLLs. And quite honestly, I hope that eventually we get to the point where we can deal with Lazarus Group on a more permanent basis to prevent these kinds of things from happening. All right, Stephen, um, industry stalwart Citrix is going to be going private. The remote desktop pioneer is being acquired by Vista Equity Partners and Evergreen Coast Capital for a cool $16.5 billion. The move is going to combine Citrix with another part of the Vista portfolio, uh, TIBCO. Now, the plan is to take the combined entity. It will do business under the Citrix name, and it will provide, and I quote, complete, secure, and optimized infrastructure for application delivery. Stephen, what's your perspective on this news? Well, so Citrix is one of those companies that, uh, frankly, should have been VMware. And uh, this is a company that uh, was founded way back in 1989 and really was a pioneer in a lot of the things that we take for granted these days. Certainly many of us have heard of the Citrix remote desktop uh, client, and there was um, a lot of buzz and news back in the 90s about that in competition with Microsoft. Uh, Citrix went public in 95, and uh, they were a pretty big, powerful competitor in the enterprise IT space in the 2000s. But uh, the company uh, really diversified since then. And even though today we still think of Citrix uh, primarily as remote desktop, that's really not what it's all about. I mean, the company is uh, very uh, involved in cloud computing and virtualization, as well as you know, remote desktop and um, collaboration. Uh, you know, go to meeting. Uh, that was a Citrix uh, product that was spun off in 2017. Uh, and the company uh, really has done quite a lot in other areas. So that being said, um, you know, the, the fact that Citrix is going private is actually a, an interesting uh, turn of events for the company. Uh, they've been making a lot of investments. Uh, they've been growing. The company is doing pretty well. Uh, but they lost their CEO suddenly and uh, they've got a new interim CEO right now. And, and, and frankly, a lot of people were scratching their heads wondering what was going on with the company. Well, apparently this is what's going on with the company. As a, a little twist that's kind of interesting here, uh, Citrix brought a company called Rike, a project management and team collaboration tool for two and a half billion dollars or two and a quarter billion dollars uh, last year. 
the company they bought that from was Vista. And so essentially what I'm wondering that's going on here, and this very well could be, is that uh, Vista maybe engineered that deal and this deal as a way to give Citrix a path to the future. The whole idea of being acquired by private equity and merged with a company like Tibco uh, suggests that what we're going to see here is a future IPO or sale of a refreshed company. And isn't that what private equity is supposed to all be about? I get as grumpy as anyone about private equity that uh, buys a company and, and basically sells, uh, the, sells it for parts. But I'm not sure that's what's happening here. And I think that this actually could spell good news for Citrix and good news for the industry. Hey, Tom, uh, you got your BlackBerry on you? Uh, just when you thought BlackBerry, BlackBerry was dead for real, uh, the shambling ghost of patents past have risen from the grave to start a whole new horror story. BlackBerry has sold their non-core patent assets to Catapult IP Innovations for $600 million. Who is Catapult? Well, guess what? It's a special purpose vehicle that was farmed to buy the BlackBerry patents. Uh, Catapult could be considered a non-practicing entity, which is an industry term for a company that doesn't make money from selling things, but instead makes money through defending their patent portfolio. You might also call them a patent troll. Apple has been sued by BlackBerry in the past, and industry experts are cautious that this sale could represent a new round of lawsuits, and that's wonderfully productive for the entire industry. Is this going to be the night of the living dead mobile company, Tom? Boy, I saw this pop up, and it really seriously did feel like the end of that Monty Python sketch where BlackBerry's only mostly dead. Um, so when you pull the deal apart, BlackBerry got $600 million to... I don't know, blow on vinyl records or something. And uh, Catapult, the special purpose vehicle that has been loaned a significant amount of money from other partners with a whole bunch of contingencies against it, gets non-core IP patents. So basically everything that BlackBerry had patented that wasn't the mobile email thing um, for re, uh, the purposes of research. Um, speaking of Research in Motion, which is the company that was BlackBerry, that is became BlackBerry, they changed their name because absolutely nobody ever referred to them by their real name. Um, they had sued Apple in the past, I think as late as 2019, over USB charging of all things. Um, so here's basically what I expect is going to happen. Um, Catapult is going to fling a whole bunch of crap over the fence at Apple into their walled garden and find ways to chip away at Apple's, um, you know, patents. Well, what they think are actually BlackBerry patents. And so what's going to end up happening is that the cadre of Apple's lawyers, which are probably at this point only second to Disney's cadre of lawyers, is going to be spending years in court defending the fact that they did something that BlackBerry kind of did first, but in a slightly different way. And all that has to happen is, like we saw with Burnett X years ago, the troll just has to get lucky once. Because once they get enough money to pay off all of those loans that they've gotten, um, they can effectively continue to sue Apple forever because they've made money. They've proven that it works. And what will ultimately happen is that we will find ourselves back into a stagnant um, industry where things kind of just suck for a while. I mean, I think we've mentioned this before on the rundown, but the whole reason why you can't do peer-to-peer -peer FaceTime calls and why FaceTime never took off as an industry standard is because of Vernet X and other companies that sued Apple saying, well, you technically infringed on our patents. And my response to that, if I was Apple, would be, okay, cool. Let me see your product. Let me see the thing you're selling 
that infringed on the patents. And I know that that's not how the patent system works. And quite honestly, if I was Apple, I'd just spend some of that uh, reserve of cash that I have to buy these people and make them work janitor jobs at Apple Park until they retire. But I don't run Apple. Tim Cook does. And he has a slightly different method of doing things. So let's just hope that Catapult IP Innovations flings themselves into the ocean and we never hear from them again. But I don't think that's going to happen. All right, Stephen. So let's rewind to some of the things that happened earlier this week. Um, there were a couple of big knee, uh, news in the chip deal market. Um, and I want to get your perspective on them because you're, you're Mr. Chip around here. Um, the first one is actually some really exciting news if you're a fan of AMD, um, because Chinese regulators have finally approved their deal to purchase Xilinx. Now, you may think, wait, haven't we talked about this repeatedly? Yes, we have. And the reason why is because the deal has been on hold for over a year because China was working to approve the merger. It's $35 billion in an all-stock transaction. Now, the industry has been wary of the approach that China has been taking because if you'll recall, a couple of years ago on the rundown, we talked about Qualcomm and their proposed acquisition of NXP Semiconductor, which China just flat out vetoed and said no, and that actually has had negative impact on NXP. And then um, we've also seen that China has been making some quiet rumblings to people that they're not overly fond of the NVIDIA and ARM architecture acquisition. However, uh, they didn't have to say anything because the UK took care of torpedoing that deal last month. The uh, Chinese government has been slow walking their approval. And part of the reason that this is a big news today is because of the slow walk, which happened over a year ago. That means that now that the Chinese government has approved it, AMD is actually going to have to refile paperwork in the U.S. to complete the acquisition that they want to get done by the end of the quarter so that they can realize some of the revenue and all that other stuff. Um, I don't expect this to be a problem. It's just kind of annoying that they waited, you know, like a week after the year uh, to finally say yes. Now, Stephen, you've been talking about this deal for a while, and I know that you're a huge proponent of it. Does this mean that we're finally going to see AMD pick up this chip giant that's kind of known for its FPGAs, but also has some other value? Yeah, I think that this uh, deal, well, it's been a pretty nuanced thing, and uh, there's a whole bunch to unravel here. Uh, again, we're not a financial analyst uh, podcast by any means, and um, I'm not qualified to talk about the finances and the investments and so on. But we can look at the deal uh, and, and how it affects the industry. And uh, it is interesting to me that AMD uh, wanted Xilinx in the first place. And it's interesting to me to speculate on what AMD is going to get from Xilinx in the future. As you mentioned, the deal is officially, officially, officially approved by everyone who needs to approve it. That's big news. Uh, and in fact, it was big enough news uh, and, and it was worrying enough to uh, financial people that there was a big spread in the cost of AMD's stock versus Xilinx's stock. So as you mentioned, it's an all stock transaction at a fixed rate. So uh, the, the fact that investors were still valuing Xilinx uh, like at a 20% discount suggested that they were worried that it wouldn't happen. Well, that spread is closed. It is going to happen. It's really, really going to happen. So what was going on here? As you mentioned, uh, the Chinese government has blocked a number of other acquisitions and kind of slow rolled some. And I think some of that just may be the government of China flexing their muscles and showing that they have pull in this modern enterprise market, which is totally true. But if you read the report uh, from uh, Samer uh, in Chinese, which I have in English translated, 
uh, you find some interesting facts in there. Number one, um, they apparently didn't know that Intel makes FPGAs, and apparently they didn't know that Xilinx makes SmartNICs, because uh, those things aren't really covered in the uh, competitive analysis report. In fact, uh, they basically say that this would be a unique combination that no other company has, which is kind of laughable because, hello, the number two FPGA maker is Intel. And um, one of the big things that Intel uses to defend their position in the data center, especially, is their smart networking gear, which uh, some of it was acquired and some of it was developed in-house, but is a big differentiator for Intel. And frankly, that's what AMD wanted. I don't know that AMD really wanted FPGAs for $30, $40 billion. I think what they wanted was to be able to compete on a platform basis with Intel, which is something we're going to talk about here in a moment. So that's really why they were buying Xilinx. Uh, Number two that you get from reading the SAMR report is the uh, remedies that are being demanded. So this is a typical thing. Essentially, when the governments uh, review a merger, they come up with a list of requirements that the companies have to agree to in order for the merger to go through. This is one reason that the AMD or the uh, NVIDIA buyout of ARM didn't happen. It wasn't that it was blocked. It was that the remedies that were going to be proposed, they kind of signaled what they would want, were just completely out of the question for NVIDIA. And so they said, no, we're not doing this. So it wasn't that it was blocked. It was just that NVIDIA would basically have had to have no benefits from the acquisition or even negative benefits in order to make it happen. So if you read, again, the Chinese report here for Xilinx, the remedies are incredibly light, like ridiculously light. The only real remedy is that AMD can't leverage Xilinx's technology to uh, improperly bundle uh, FPGAs with CPUs in the Chinese market. Um, Let me just tell you the chances of that being a relevant business uh, problem for AMD are somewhat less than zero. I mean, it's just that's just not a thing. It's not a problem. I'm sure AMD was like, "Oh yeah, we'll sign that one, no problem." You know, because that's just not that's not what they're planning to do here. What they're planning to do is leverage the FPGAs and the SmartNICs to compete with Intel, and none of that has to do with the Chinese market because Intel is obviously a strong competitor and everything's fine. So it's happening. Um, another thing that uh, is interesting here is sort of the timing here. Uh, Again, this was all completely 100% approved, but now there's some paperwork that has to happen. And in the meantime, AMD announced their financial results, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, AMD's stock went way up. Since Xilinx is an all-stock transaction, that means that their stock, which was kind of down with the entire market, went way up too. And uh, essentially, the merger ends up being much more expensive for AMD than expected. And that is an interesting aspect here as well. So AMD made an all-stock offer for Xilinx, I am suspicious that we won't see as many of these anymore because essentially if you have a company that makes an all-stock offer for, you know, oh, we'll give you, I don't know, two shares of our stock for every one share of your stock uh, in 2022, and it takes until 2024 for the merger to complete, that acquisition can get very expensive very fast. And that's what happened here with Xilinx. I mean, effectively, AMD is going to spend like twice as much uh, sort of stock money as they expected to to make this acquisition. But the good news is uh, for AMD is that it's actually not bad because Xilinx keeps growing. In fact, Xilinx's overall revenues grew by 26% in the last year. 
Uh, data center revenues are up 81%. And again, that's what AMD wants. And uh, Xilinx is looking at revenues over a billion dollars, which is material to AMD's numbers. And so essentially, AMD has uh, a good deal. Xilinx has a good deal. Everybody's good. And this actually enhances competition, as we're going to talk about in a second, in the data center space. So essentially, we're good. Yeah, I would totally agree with you, Stephen. And, and yes, anybody who thought that the AMD was just buying Xilinx for these FPGAs is wrong. And that's because there are other FPGA companies out there that would have been a whole lot easier to pick up. And all you got to do is go back to Tech Field Day that we uh, recorded back in September. That would have been uh, Tech Field Day 24 because Xilinx did present there. And they talked about their Alveo Smart NICs. Um, what's a Smart NIC? Uh, you may have heard it called a DPU. If you talk to NVIDIA, you may have heard it called an IPU. If you talk to Intel, you may have heard it called the future of the way that we do computing if you talk to any analyst firm. Because what we're starting to see is a saturation point. Chips aren't getting any faster. I mean, um, Stephen, you and I were having this conversation last week. When you look at the way that chips are being designed now, it's not about making them run as fast as possible, despite what the um, consumer tech news sites would have you say, you know, Apple has the fastest chips, now Intel has the fastest chips. It's about making them work efficiently. It's about lowering the power requirements. It's about making them work better. And how much better will a chip work when it's not focused on doing things all the time? For example, what if I could offload networking and storage I.O. to a completely separate unit inside of the system? That's what a SmartNIC IPU DPU does. It is designed to take some of the functions off of the system. <clears throat> You're probably thinking to yourself, okay, I've used daughter cards in the past. Do you know what else it is? It's two units inside of a system you double the amount of sales that you can do, especially if you start writing things that can only run through a DPU. I mean, when we talk to another DPU manufacturer, uh, Pensando, they're leveraging P4, which is a programming language that is was developed by Barefoot Networks uh, before their acquisition by Intel to kind of essentially act as like a programming language for packet forwarding. Well, you can't do that inside of a CPU. You can only do that inside of some kind of an offload engine. And so I think that that's where there's a huge value here, because when you look at what NVIDIA is doing with their acquisition from Mellanox with Bluefield, when you look at what Intel is leveraging with their IPU technologies, yes, they include FPGAs, yes, they include smaller cores, but ultimately what they're trying to do is they're trying to re-architect the way that the system works. And I'm not saying that Intel is going to be the king of this market or that NVIDIA is going to you know, continue their dominance uh, from their acquisition. What I'm saying is, is we're going to have a three-way race, which we need. Because when we have this many companies who are innovating and they're trying to deliver not just the hardware, but the software that's required to run it, it makes everybody better. It makes the leaps in the technology more apparent. I mean, we talk about software-defined networking all the time, and we joke, you know, it used to be OpenFlow. It's not anymore. It's DPDK. It is the the um, Bluefield te programming technology that N NVIDIA has developed. It's whatever AMD and Xilinx are going to come up with to program their smart NICs. It's P4 being leveraged by these DPUs. It ultimately means that the hardware becomes less important because it's just running flat out doing what it's designed to do, and it's how we make it work. And boy, if you can catch that comet, it'll take you all the way past the moon and into the stars. 
And that's why this is so important to AMD. So I, I, I come back to the technology. I'm like you, I'm not a financial wizard. I, I don't give financial advice. I can just talk about the tech. And I think that this is the tech that AMD needs to complete all sides of this. They already have dominance in the chip market. They already have dominance in the graphics processing market. They're fighting NVIDIA on one front, they're fighting Intel on the other, and now they have the piece that they need to compete with both of them across the entire portfolio, which is a win not only for them, but for us as consumers. Yeah, let me uh, reiterate one thing here, Tom, uh, in terms of what we're looking at in the data center market. We are looking at a three-way race between a extremely strong and successful NVIDIA, a really hot AMD, and a really dominant Intel. And frankly, that kind of competition is good for all of us. Right. Well, actually, let's talk about AMD and Intel for just a minute, because I don't know if you know this or not, but it's earnings season week uh, for the Q4 results. And um, we had announcements from Intel on the January the 26th, and we had an announcement from AMD yesterday. Um, this will kind of give us a picture of where things are going, at least in the short term, on a quarter by quarter basis. Now, Intel had really strong performance, but one of the things that came out in their earnings call was they had warned um, that there's going to be a dip in expected sales, and there's going to be some higher expenses related to R&D. Now, AMD, they were a little sunnier. I'm, I'm kind of wondering why that might be, um, because they did beat their expectations again, and they are guiding that there's going to be sales growth in the coming year. Now, when we look at everything that's going on, Stephen, what does this tell us about servers and the cloud as we roll forward into 2022? So AMD has been competing with Intel for a long time, as a lot of us in the tech industry know. And AMD has often had a hit here and there. Uh, I remember, you know, back in the 486 uh, time period, I remember seeing it with their many cores, uh, which was such a clever pun. A competitor for Intel's uh, server CPUs, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, here they are again with the Zen architecture. It's great. Honestly, it's just great. And uh, it's really doing well. It's doing well in uh, desktop. It's doing well in workstations. It's doing well in servers. And frankly, it's seeing some uptake in the cloud. AMD has a hot product on their hands. Uh, and one of the reasons they do is because they've got this cool technology uh, based on chiplets that allows them to have more cores than Intel does. Another thing AMD did really well was PCI Express. Uh, basically, they adopted PCIe 4 quicker than Intel, and they have more lanes than Intel, which meant, again, in the server and cloud space, that those servers were very compelling, because not only did they have more cores, but they also had more, faster, better I.O. than anything Intel offered. Move forward to 2021, and Intel announces their Ice Lake uh, Xeons. Uh, we see Alder Lake in the client side at the second half of the year, and actually just uh, really um, detailed uh, just this month. And we're starting to see that Intel is striking back. Again, you might have heard that Intel has a new CEO and that it's an engineer who worked on like the Pentium and stuff like that. Yeah, Pat Gelsinger, um, he is cleaning house in-house, investing, and that's what we're seeing here. So in terms of the numbers, uh, again, we're not financial analysts, but in terms of the numbers, I think it's important to recognize that Intel is a much, much, much bigger company than AMD and much more successful. Uh, what does that mean? 
Well, uh, for 2021, uh, Intel uh, revenues were about $18.5 billion. And for 2021, uh, AMD's revenues were about $3.5 billion. Uh, For 2022's estimates, we're looking at about $5 billion for AMD and about 18-something for Intel. So again, Intel is going to be a big competitor, but AMD, what, what their numbers did, they jumped from like $3 billion to $5 billion. That's a huge, huge leap forward. And remember, they just bought a billion-dollar-a-year revenue data center company in Xilinx, and that acquisition is going to close any minute now, and that is not included in these numbers. So AMD is absolutely instantly going to be, instead of $3 billion compared to eighteen, it's going to be more like 6 or 7 compared to eighteen which is a big difference in terms of company size. But Intel is still more profitable. Uh, Intel's earnings per share are higher uh, than AMD's. And uh, frankly, that should make investors want to invest in Intel. But why don't they? Well, it's a technical story. And the technical story is that Pat Gelsinger is going to spend a ton of money re-engineering, redoing, revamping, revving up, making Intel what it should have been Uh, for a long time, which is essentially a tech powerhouse. And as we've talked about on the rundown again and again and again, Intel is investing. And that's where the money's going. And that's why investors kind of are scared because they're seeing that they're not going to get that money in dividends or whatever. Uh, It's going to go back into product. Well, I love that. Thank you. Put the money into product. Uh, Put the money, you know, invest in chip fabs. Invest in next generation uh, server CPUs. Invest in in FPGAs and smart uh, network devices and and everything that Intel's investing in, because again, that's good for the market. That's good for the data center and it's good for cloud. And really that's Intel's secret. They can pour the money into whatever needs, you know, whatever the, the big markets are. So when Facebook needed a many core and many chip, you know, uh, multi-processing chip. Intel basically made them one. And that was sort of the the, the previous uh, four and eight processor Xeons that uh, those are basically the Facebook chips. That's what Intel does. They go to these partners and they say, what do you need? We'll make you one. We talked last week about a, a Bitcoin ASIC. Ah, who needs that? Somebody wanted to buy it and Intel said, okay, we'll take the money and we'll make it for you. Uh, And that's what we're going to see here. We're going to see a lot of investment in 2022 with Intel pouring money into server and cloud, especially. Uh, Intel already has a very compelling desktop and mobile processor in Alder Lake. In fact, AMD is really trying to catch up in that market, but uh, the Intel product is just way better. And and so, you know, that's going to be where Intel goes. They're going to pour their money into R&D. And so they are probably going to underperform what Wall Street wants in 2022. But what Gestalt IT wants? Oh, that's what we want. We want to see cool, advanced products. AMD, on the other hand, well, they're flush with cash. They're darlings. Uh, They're currently uh, trading at uh, 28x price to earnings, which means that investors are like, this company is going somewhere. We're going to pour money into this company. So what do you do when you've got somebody pouring money in? You invest, just like Intel. AMD is investing like crazy. They bought Xilinx. Uh, I imagine they're probably going to buy some other people because they got plenty of money. And um, I know for a fact that they're investing in people too. AMD is hiring some of the best people in the industry. 
because they want to be able to compete with Intel. And so this is just a win, win, win. Now, maybe Wall Street doesn't see that, but I don't care what Wall Street wants. I care what the data center wants. And what the data center wants is strong competitors who are investing in R&D and delivering great products. And that's what Intel is doing. And that's what AMD is doing. And oh, by the way, that's also what NVIDIA is doing. NVIDIA is sort of the other player in this space. Now, they don't have an x86 CPU like Intel and AMD. But I think we just said that it's all about the platform. It's all about everything. And frankly, NVIDIA can partner with AMD or Intel or whoever, you know, ARM and, and deliver a CPU. They kind of don't need that tech because they've got everything else. And so what are we seeing in the data center? We're seeing a three-way race with three incredibly big, incredibly clever, creative companies investing like crazy in R&D, pushing out all sorts of dynamic products. And so whether it's the client or the server or the cloud, we're going to see a tremendous growth in this industry. And it's going to be a really fun to watch here uh, on the rundown. Yeah. And I will say, you know, Stephen, that was an excellent analysis. The, the biggest thing that sticks out to me is the old adage that you need to spend money to make money. And after seeing the way that Intel has been run for the last few years, um, they've been squeezing that turn up really hard to get every dollar of drop of blood as they can out of it because they don't want to invest anymore, or at least the previous administration did not. Um, Pat Gelsinger is not like that. He's going to take whatever it takes to make things better in the long run. If, if it means that we have to spend a billion dollars to build fabs here in the U.S. and to acquire companies and to do the research into what people need and sell off the parts that we don't want because they kind of distract from the core business, then yes, that's what needs to happen. And, and having been a part of VMware, having been a part of the EMC Federation, and for a while having been a part of Dell after Michael Dell purchased the company and took it private, I think that you can see there's this kind of a tug of war of, I need to do what's best for my company for the long term, but I also have to make sure that every three months that I don't have investors running for the hills because they suddenly disagree with my vision because they're so focused on the mission that they forget that the mission's supposed to support the vision, not the other way around. So we'll we'll have to see how this works out. You know, fingers crossed that it works out well for Intel and AMD both, like it should. But the the value there comes from where they're going, not the dividends that they're paying to their shareholders at the end of every quarter. All right, Stephen, we got a couple of things coming up this week and in the coming weeks that we wanted to make sure that we let everybody know about. I think the next big thing we've got is just coming up in a couple of weeks. It's something that you're really excited about. Absolutely. Uh, February 16th through 18th is Cloud Field Day. And if you're interested in this whole world of cloud, whether it's uh, you know compute or platforms, Kubernetes, containers, even storage, uh, tune in for Cloud Field Day. Go to techfieldday.com or go to the Tech Field Day page on LinkedIn. And that's, again, February 16th through 18th. And I'll remind you that the week after that, the week of President's Day here in the U.S., is WLPC 2022. I think there's still some available slots there. If you want to head over to their website at uh, wlandprofessionals.com, you can get registered for that event. If you are interested in all things wireless and, and want to see some very good presentations from some of the brightest minds in the industry, um, if you're a little bit more on the mobile side of the house, there's one more thing coming up, and that would be Mobile World Congress, which is February 28th through March 3rd. That's in Barcelona. Um, they have committed to having that event in person. So um, if you are headed over there, um, 
you know, make sure you check out all the stuff that they're working on and uh, check out some of the exhibitors. I'm sure that we'll see some news coming out of uh, Mobile World Congress that we will absolutely be covering here on the rundown, just like we do every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time. Uh, remember that you can find us on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestalt IT video. Uh, you can read the article on our website at gestaltit.com, including the show notes that we have from all of the uh, uh, articles that we've linked to where we get our news from. You can listen to this as a podcast if you're maybe, I don't know, uh, cleaning the house during a snow day or going out for a run. Um, the dulcet tones of Stephen and I uh, singing you to awake or into your work. Um, maybe some Sunny and Cher, you never know. Uh, we we want to bring you the best that we can again and again every week at 12.30 Eastern Time on Wednesday. Um, so for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett, for the great people here at Gestalt IT, I want to wish you a happy Groundhog's Day. May winter stay away long enough for you to have a little sunshine in your day. And we will talk to you again next week.